to Pop the Question, a podcast that exists at the intersection of pop culture and academia. We sit down and talk about our favorite stuff through the lenses of what we do and who we are. From Pannoni Honors College at Drexel University, Dr. Melinda Lewis here. I'm your host. I'm here with Amanda McMillan LeCue, an environmental sociologist here at Drexel University. And we're going to be talking about a lot of stuff, but mostly place, people, and stories. And I'm really excited to get into it. How are you? I'm doing well. How are you doing? Good. I always get very excited, but also nervous talking to sociologists because y'all are very trained to pay attention mm-hmm. and just thinking about the ways that you were writing and, and listening. Were you always somebody who was asking a lot of questions? Were you somebody who was just overall curious about the world? Kind of working backwards, I really did stumble into becoming a sociologist and becoming a professor. Mm-hmm. So I grew up outside of Pittsburgh in a small town of Hermony, a rural community, a village of 700. So really interesting rural urban connections. We spent our childhood in this community and it was a really beautiful place to grow up. Mm-hmm easy access to outdoors, but still the fading days of small town grocery stores and pet shops and notary stores. It's, it's changed a lot since then, but I still have some dear folks who still live in that area. One of the things to know about Hermony is coal. Without coal, there would be no Hermony. In the 1890s, a Philadelphia company got interested in the area out there and bought land and built a mine that produced the town called Hermony. Now, the mine didn't last forever. In the late 30s, 1938, the mine shut down. Even though the mine is no longer there, the town still exists. Something that always struck me and my family struggled with growing up was my parents moved to this town in 1970s, and they were still considered outsiders, even decades later. And so as I moved to college, uh, traveled, lived abroad, came back, I'd always wrestled with this sense of belonging, this idea of who belongs where and why, how do we plug into a community? Why does it matter Mm -hmm. to feel like someplace is home or that we belong somewhere, that we're accepted socially? And throughout growing up, I was fascinated with environmental issues. This is a former coal mining town that I grew up in. And so our creeks were always orange from iron mine runoff. And then as I got older and started asking some questions about belonging and social life, I continued to focus in college and then beyond on reading and work that was looking at the intersection of humans and environment. So that's what kind of brought me into this line of research that's really just talking to people and asking them their stories and trying to capture them as thoughtfully as possible and then mapping people's experiences and stories onto history and data that's been gathered to make sure that, you know, the stories are kind of making sense within the broader world. Yeah. And there are people, there are rural sociologists, the people who commit their lives to watching and studying and learning about how really tightly knit groups of people 
what does that mean? Like whenever we're tightly knit, we kind of, you know, in everyday pop culture, we're like, ah, that's a really close knit community, or it's really hard to get into that community. What does that actually mean? And there's actually social scientists who study this and can help us understand how those relationships form and then what happens when they're threatened, Mm -hmm. which I think a lot of small towns in the US, but across the world have also been wrestling a lot with this. Like what happens when all the young people leave Mm. or what happens when it's really hard to get people to be the teachers at that small school or be the doctors. So how do you enter in to those communities and getting the data? There's been projects I've started and I haven't successfully done that. Mm. People just haven't bought into who I am. They're suspicious, often with really good reasons that I'm coming from kind of an elite background. Maybe I'm going to you know, treat what they've experienced with doubt, which who wants to be doubted, especially if I'm talking to folks about things that are really important to them, like environmental justice issues or the future of the community that they and their families have invested in for generations. Like this is important stuff. If they don't really know or trust that I'm going to do good by them and at least you know accurately capture what they're saying, even if I, I might systematically analyze it, which is what my job is as a sociologist, then it's completely fine for them to say no. And I've had that happen. So in, in some cases, I've really just selected situations where I have a stake in it. So my dissertation was on um, looking at a rural community in Iron County, Wisconsin that used to mine iron, and then a steel mill community kind of at the opposite end of that same system in Chicago. And, you know, the happenstance that I grew up in a coal mining community outside of Pittsburgh has actually really helped. Well, we don't often think about rural and urban as part of the same story, but they're absolutely part of the same story, especially in terms of deindustrialization or massive economic or environmental changes. And so by thinking about how rural communities were impacted differently than urban communities and how people in those places used their landscapes differently or use their social relationships differently to make ends meet after the companies closed, we can start learning about why does rural and urban matter? Because we don't actually interrogate that, I think, Mm -hmm. a lot in pop culture. We just assume rural people are different than urban people. Well, what does that actually mean? Like, what are the resources on the ground? I'm thinking here, like, socially, culturally, but also just practically. How does those geographic locations actually shape people's experience of home and place? Mm -hmm. So we can actually start understanding what that looks like. People, they laugh when they hear. So I have to lay something on the line of me. And that's been really helpful for a, for a lot of interviewees because they've, in their interviews, have actually said, well, you understand this, what I'm talking about, right? You've seen your town die slowly as the economic forces change and all the jobs go somewhere else. It's like, yeah, I have totally seen that. And it's really hard. I don't live in that town anymore because there aren't a lot of job options there. Yeah. I mean, my friends who have stayed have struggled with that. And so having these points of connection that are really genuine, they're also vulnerable. But I think that we owe that to whoever we're researching because these are people living life. Living in the promised land. 
about that podcast you do. Are you on the Instagram or the Twitter or the Facebook? You know, like if I have an idea for a podcast, how do I get in touch with you? Love you. Bye. Sup, mom? Uh, yeah. So you can find us on all those things, actually. Twitter, Instagram, Facebook. Just go to PopQuestPod on any one of those and follow. If you want to send us ideas, you can either go over to our website and leave us a message at Podcast. Or you can get us directly at popq at drexel.edu. You can actually find us on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher. Um, I can help set it up when I get home. But then you have to promise me to rate and review. All right. Love you. Bye. I was born in a small town. And I can breathe in a small town. I also want to make sure anytime I go into a community, I try to do a lot of research before I talk to folks to show that I think that their story, their history in a place is valuable enough for me to have spent some time doing the work. So reading the books that have been locally published, reading the newspaper articles, talking to farmers, asking them about the farm crisis in the 1980s, and understanding what that means when I ask them about that. We're losing ground every day to corporations and ag business. And somebody needs to, to be out there in a national spotlight, you know, shining their lights on the small family farms to keep them alive and keep them relevant. We should be interested in knowing where our food comes from. If it comes from the soil that is organic, that are grown by our family farmers, we know it's more healthy than the food grown by the big corporations who saturate the soil with chemicals and pesticides. How do you converge all of these stories that are told in different ways into something that is cohesive? I don't know how you do that. And I also think that your work is incredibly accessible. Like it's really nice to have an academic paper use the word gruff or provide the texture of, of people's lives. Well, I'm so glad you find the work accessible because that's that's really important to me. I want my work to at least be 80% completely readable by people who I interview. Mm. That 20% is actually what draws these different stories together for me, that, that remaining maybe slightly unreadable part. And that's the idea of social theory. Social theory is where sociology is not journalism because we're actually looking for systematic patterns that maybe we recognize from other situations. One of the best learning experiences I've had for writing accessibly are other writers who aren't necessarily academics, mm. but who are making some sort of clear argument based on stories, based on data. And they're not letting the story itself disappear, but they're also not just leaving it as a story. They're also helping the reader interpret what's going on and link that smaller story within something bigger. So something, uh, one writer I love is Wendell Berry. Barry used to be a professor at the University of Kentucky, and he left that position. He, he's in his late 80s now uh, in order to be an essayist. And so essentially to write nonfiction and some fiction 
essays reflecting on people's relationship to place. But something he does really powerfully is always links both personal and broader experiences and stories of how people are in place, especially in the United States, with some themes of what does it mean to stay long-term in a place? What does it mean to leave a place? What does it mean to wrestle with significant pollution or economic capital flight from a region? And so constantly is drawing in those, those smaller scale stories into a bigger story of what does American capitalism look like mm -hmm. has been an incredibly useful tool for me as I think about similar questions as a sociologist. I would love to follow along this Wendell Berry line, but like, how did you come across this work? I first came across the work in college, actually, and it wasn't in a class. It was just that Wendell Berry became really cool uh, <laughs> in the early 2000s. He's been writing since the 70s, so it's not like we discovered anything new. And then as I started graduate school, I actually found Wendell Berry's mentor, Wallace Stanger, mm -hmm. who was a fiction writer for the most part, incredibly helpful too, because fiction writers are beautiful writers, typically. Mm -hmm. So so Stanger wrote about this phrase, boomers and stickers, that I just found incredibly useful. Berry quotes Stanger amply in his own writing. But Wallace Stanger wrote about how some people just pillage the earth and move on. Mm -hmm. Boomers can be really aggressive and greedy, but also maybe that's just the American way to like be on the road, um, like grapes of wrath, like the Joad family, just continuing on the road towards California. Yeah. And then other people stay in one place. They stick to a place. Well, I have been all over, but I can't help feeling stuck. Something in my bloodline or something. In my gut Says go to California In a rusty pickup truck It's all American made And there might be ways, you know, we might be like, oh, the stickers they're sticks in the mud. They're afraid of change. You know, there's different ways we can, we can say this, or we can romanticize the stickers and be like, wow, they have so much affection for place. They are committed. Usually it's some mix of the two. Yeah. And I found that it was so excessively put. Like, of course, like we get that intuitively, right? We're like, oh yeah, some people just move on. They kind of make a mess and move on. And then there's another category of people who just stick around and they deal with whatever aftermath of that boom might be occurring. These are ways of capturing essentially an American experience of ways of being in place that was just so simply put by Stanger that it captured my imagination and it gave me this like handle that I could hang on to for a whole mess of social problems that fascinated me. Mm. It's also very exciting to me. I love that like genealogy of like, oh, this person begets this person, this person begets that person. There's also some short stories he's written, Crossing to Safety, and then I'm, I'm even thinking of like Jan Nagasi's home going. Mm. What fiction is trying to do is they're capturing a moment in time for a particular group of people and how they're experiencing their own histories, their own places. Yeah. You probably won't find me assigning a lot of fiction in most of my classes, but if someone is trying to learn how to write mm -hmm. and communicate about really complicated social things in a way that grabs our attention, but is also accurate, then very good fiction is excellent. Mm. Now, not all fiction is created equal, just like not all uh, nonfiction is created equal. There's also some memoirs that often will pose as social science that 
actually, I think, do more harm than good because they have uninterrogated stereotypes, for instance. But I think really good fiction can can set us up to think about how to talk about the places that people care about in language that make other people care about those places too. Mm-hmm. So this means going beyond census data or geographic description. It means talking about emotions, talking about the labor of our hands, talking about the ways that our memories overlap in landscapes. So there are scholars who actually do this really well and provide us with tools and language where we can talk about human relationship to place in a very emotive way that non-academics are going to recognize, which is great, but that also can still point scholars towards more questions that we can ask of, of similar places. Are there any examples of, of things that you think represent that well? And I guess part of that would also be defining what do we mean by representing place well? Americans talk about their rural areas in fiction in really interesting ways, both positive and negative. I think we have really complicated relationships to all of our places, but I don't think it means representing absolutely every perspective that's that every person who has ever lived in a place <laughs> will have a, of that place. That's too much to ask. So that means that whenever I'm very critical of particularly nonfiction that pretends to represent the totality of what a place is about, that's what I'm critical of. So I'm pretty critical of Hillbilly Elegy, for instance. I know I could have done better, but you, you got to decide you want to be somebody or not. As a memoir, it's a decent memoir, but... The problem is we've got folks who don't live in Appalachia who are using the memoir as social science to categorize an entire diverse, heterogeneous region Mm. with a kind of a a line of stereotypes, essentially, that reflect one person's experience, but then are portrayed both in the book and kind of in popular discourse as capturing everyone's experience and thus uh, proposing certain policy solutions. That's where I get little red flags going up. There are situations where we can get policy proposals from really systematic and thoughtful studies that look at cross sections of a community or looks at one particular segment of a population within the community. And those public policy solutions can be just so grounded and rooted in what's going on. I think for me, particularly when we think about the Rust Belt, there's no sense of anybody experiencing anything in the like feelings wheel that corresponds with happy. And I feel like that doesn't align with experience just generally. Certainly, if you're reading something about a huge disaster, most people are just going to be really traumatized and sad. (laughs) But if you're reading what could be considered a real community study, and there's only one emotion, even though the study is covering a lot of time and a lot of different groups of people, then that's a red flag to me Mm. because we're really complicated people. Um, Something in my own book that I'm wrestling with now on the Rust Belt rural urban cases Mm -hmm. is thinking about and taking very seriously how people who have lived in places for a long time experience the trauma of massive economic change that happened during deindustrialization, like a lot of folks in the Rust Belt, but also love where they live. Even though their choices might not be as many, they're still making choices and saying, I have chosen to stay here. And I love where I live. I love the seasons. I love my neighbors. It's a hard place to live. It kind of drives me nuts, but I also am really glad to live here. Well, everybody's got a secret song. Something that they just can't face. Some folks spend their whole lives trying to keep it. They carry it with them every step that they take. 
that what it means to be human? Yeah. We're constantly wrestling with the sense that we are, of course, agents of our own destiny, but yet we're not. Mm-hmm. But I want to capture that complexity of emotion mm-hmm. because, again, really good fiction totally does this. In the darkness on the edge of town. In the darkness on the edge. And I think really good nonfiction can also do this. It can also tap into that joy while also pointing out structural issues that are constraining those menus of options. Yeah, I just came across the feelings wheel recently in life and was like, wow, there are a lot. (laughs) Yes. But I think that we are often pushed to divorce ourselves from being fully embodied and really thinking about what you're saying of feeling life and feeling space and just existing. And so I think we all need feelings. Wheels. <laughs> you know, I should take feelings wheels to my interviews and be like, let's park your feelings here. And then I want to take the feelings wheels to, you know, both academics and non-academics who aren't familiar with Rust Belt communities mm-hmm. and say, look at how many different feelings are actually showing up. If you really listen to the stories I'm sharing in the interview, we quotes that are in my book. Mm -hmm. And we can start complicating the discussion a little bit beyond this, like black and white, are you moving forward or stuck in the past discourse? I think it's just too overwhelming in our popular political moment. I always try to communicate to students, we're entering a conversation, either through formal scholarship or journalism, or just literally talking to each other. We're constantly building on knowledge towards this pursuit of understanding how the world works. Mm -hmm. And so citation practices, that's part of just acknowledging that you're part of a conversation, that you're not the next hot thing that's suddenly out of nowhere discovered some great new idea. (laughs) You're building on the labors of other people and the thoughts and experiences of past generations. I don't think we talk about enough about that sense of responsibility, but also sense of community with texts that continue to live and breathe. Yeah, it's absolutely empowering. And it's not just for people in college. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I was thinking about like the same excitement of finding yourself, at least when I was like 13 or 14 on a message board for something that I really liked. Yes. I love that analogy. I mean, we were probably the generation of AOL messenger and like chat rooms. Absolutely. Yeah. I was really into horses and finding other horse people talking about things that among my friends, I was just like this weird nerdy girl who really liked reading horse books. Saddle club. Exactly. But then like jumping in to like a message board and being able to connect with all these people who similarly maybe felt out of place locally, but then connected digitally, or maybe there's ways we could find those commonalities locally, but just, you know, a different social group, just really empowering because it meant, you know, we're not alone. I don't, feel like we want to be alone as humans. Yeah. Thank you so much for hanging out with us and and talking about all of this. I think your work is really cool. Thanks. It's been so fun to chat with you today. Pop the Question was researched and hosted by Dr. Melinda Lewis. Our theme music and episodes are produced by Brian Kantorik with additional audio production by Noah Levine. All of this was done under the directorship of Erica Levy-Zellinger, the deanship of Dr. Paula Moranz-Cohen, and the Pannoni Honors College at Drexel University. I honestly do. What we talking about practice, man? What are we talking about? Practice? We talking about practice, man?